0: Keep your Bible open uh, as we have a look at this passage together. Uh, Let me pray uh, that God might teach us Uh, Dear Lord, I pray that your word might speak to us this morning Uh, Help us to know you to love you and to proclaim you faithfully courageously and clearly Amen. Uh, As Australians uh, we have grown up with a long Christian heritage. It's been part of our nation's story ever since the first fleet, uh, and even but even today, uh, our most uh, well-known Christian festivals, you know, like Christmas and Easter, are becoming increasingly disconnected from Christ. Uh, And it's not really uh, a comment to sort of lament, you know, the decay of of modern Australian culture. Uh, But it it is an acknowledgement that things are changing uh, in the world around us. And so that impacts uh, how we share the gospel uh, with people around us. You know, so it used to be perhaps, let me convince you uh, that the gospel is true. Uh, But more and more, we need to sort of go back a little bit further uh, right back to the start, and let me tell you what the gospel is in the first place. Let me tell you the message of the Bible and uh, th- this person called Jesus and what he came to do, and then let me convince you why it is true. Uh, so in this passage uh, that we read today, uh, Paul is uh, on a journey towards Athens, uh, and it's interesting to see how he engages uh, with different communities of people. Uh, So the gospel message doesn't change, but how he presents the gospel uh, changes dramatically. Uh, So to provide some context, uh, Paul has been travelling north from Jerusalem. Uh, And last week we spent some time uh, way up north, a little bit to the west, uh, in Philippi. Uh, where we met a wealthy trader uh, by the name of Lydia, uh, a young slave girl who was afflicted by an evil spirit and who could tell fortunes, and a jailer. Uh, And we saw how God works through a whole series of unusual events uh, to save not just individuals, but whole households. Uh, And now he continues to go uh, from town to town. He's now heading south uh, towards Athens. Uh, And we read in verse 2, right back at the beginning of the chapter, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and providing and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. So when Paul talks to a Jewish audience, uh, notice where he starts. So he starts with what they already understand Uh, That that There is a God, Uh, it is the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. Uh, They are waiting for a Messiah and they trust the scriptures. And so what does Paul do? Well, he shows them from the scriptures why Jesus is the fulfilment of everything that God has promised and that Jesus needed to suffer and die for the sins of humanity and rise again. And then when we get to Athens, we see a similar but different pattern. So we pick up uh, the account at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them, uh, for his travelling companions in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So Athens uh, was the native city of the great philosophers of Socrates and Plato. Uh, It was the adopted home of Aristotle and Epicurus. Uh, So it has a long and prestigious history of philosophical thought. And even though Athens was uh, a long way from being a world power uh, that it had been once upon a time, so 340-odd years ago, uh, they were ruling the world. Uh, By the time Paul's walking through the city, not so much. Uh, But philosophical thought was still a big part of their culture. So verse 21, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So that was sort of part of their their cultural world. Uh, And the the word philosophy means uh, a love of wisdom. So it seeks to answer questions like, Uh, What is the meaning of life? What is my purpose? Uh, What is right and wrong and virtuous? And often uh, Greek philosophical thought engaged with those questions with a very broad view of the gods. So for some, uh, God was everywhere and in everything, Uh, what we call pantheistic. Uh, For others, uh, God had sort of established uh, the the natural laws of things uh, and right and wrong and virtue, uh, but they really had no personal interest or investment in what humans did. It was really up to the humans to work out what to do with it. And so as he wanders around this city, he sees a society that's deeply devoted to their religion and their idols, but he also recognises that they're a culture and a society that has their trust that is deeply misplaced. So look at this picture here. Uh, I'm kind of hoping you don't recognise anyone in the picture Uh, It's not about anyone in particular Uh, But yeah, what do you see? Do do we see uh, a a crowd of people? Uh, We see our local shopping centre, if you haven't recognised it Uh, Yeah, you might see stuff you want to buy Uh, But do we see uh, people who desperately need Christ? Uh, People who need to be saved most of the time when I walk through the square, I'm more concerned about the coffee and where I'm about to buy the coffee uh, than I am about all the people I'm walking past. Uh, but for Paul, as he walks through the, this city uh, of Athens, uh, he is deeply distressed when he sees a whole society of people who do not know Christ and who need to know Christ. Christ. And so his response was to do something about it. Uh, so verse 17. Uh, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And the marketplace in the area of Pagus becomes the focus of Luke's attention for the rest of this chapter. Uh, because as he stands up and talks about Jesus in the marketplace, uh, he gets the attention of some of the local philosophers. Uh, which isn't too difficult because everyone sort of thinks they're a philosopher. Uh, But for those who who love a bit of philosophy, uh, and who doesn't, uh, the Stoics were followers of a guy called Zeno, which is a pretty cool name. Uh, And he was around in about 340 BC. uh, And they sort of believed in accepting sort of the natural order of things. And the ultimate good was to live virtuously. Uh, so happiness was achieved by engaging with things rationally uh, and accepting your experience and your circumstances, you know, rather than sort of getting tossed around by the whims of your emotions. You know, so w- one minute you're happy, then you're sad, then you're joyous, then you're fearful, then you're jealous, uh, then you're sort of back to joyful again. Uh, and that's sort of just one Facebook post. You, know, you go through the, the rest of your day. Uh, you know, for, for the Stoic... That they would say, now leave all of that behind. You are in control, uh, so start thinking with your, your brain and stop thinking with your heart. Uh, the Epicureans, on the other hand, uh, were all about seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. Uh, but they weren't into excess, because if you have too much of a good thing, then that can end up being painful. Uh, so it was sort of like, you know, if you're gonna have the, you want to have the perfect meal, but you don't want to eat too much because you don't wanna go home feeling all bloated and stuff. Uh, So the Epicureans, you know, trying to find that Goldilocks point, not too much, not too little. Uh, So the Epicureans and the Stoics had very different philosophies of life, Uh, but they did have something in common, and that was uh, both of them rejected the idea that there was an afterlife. Uh, So there is no resurrection, there is no heaven, there is no hell. And so, when Paul stands up and speaks in the marketplace uh, about the resurrection, he's not speaking to a sympathetic audience. Uh, They might disagree with each other, uh, but they really disagree with Paul. And so, for some, uh, they hear what he's saying and and they just think he's a bit of a babbling idiot. Uh, But for others, uh, they're kind of curious about what he's saying and this teaching. Uh, So they invite him to speak speak at a meeting of the Areopagus, which is kind of like uh, the Athenian equivalent of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. So it was sort of a a centre of political power, of legal power, of philosophical thought. And so people would would gather together, you know, to to listen to these ideas. Uh, So it was quite prestigious uh, to be invited to come and speak. Uh, And so uh, verse... uh, well, I'm not sure, where, I didn't put my verse number But people of Athens, this is how he stands up and speaks People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious For as I walk around and look carefully at your objects of worship I even found an altar with this inscription To an unknown God So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you And so that's how Paul starts as he stands up in front of this crowd. He goes, you guys uh, believe in in gods. So we've got that in common. Uh, You guys acknowledge that there is a God that you don't know about. Uh, So let me stand up and speak to you about what I know about what you don't know. You know? Got it? you with me? Okay, so verse 24. uh, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Uh, so we all believe in God or gods. Uh, and Paul wants to stand up and say, the God I am talking about, you know, isn't one of these sort of puny demigods, Right? He's not one of the small little punter ones. Uh, the God I'm talking about is the God who created everything. And the true and living God provides order. So, verse 26: From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he made out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. So, God has given each of us our place in humanity and our place in history. And he has provided everything we need for human flourishing. Uh, But when we see order, then we've also got a natural reaction, a human reaction, to look for meaning behind that order, to look for purpose. And really that's what philosophy is all about. It's trying to find answers. Uh, But so often, of course, we look inside ourselves for answers uh, or we look at one another for answers. Uh, instead of looking to something bigger, something greater, something more powerful. Uh, But God has set us up to look beyond ourselves. So verse 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. Uh, verse 28 uh, sounds like Paul is describing the God of the Bible, for in him we live and move and have our being. Uh, but actually, all that section uh, is, is a quote or two quotes uh, from two Greek poems. Uh, and they're actually about Zeus, uh, not God of the Bible. So Paul is not saying... Uh, that Zeus is really the God of the Bible and they just sort of had different masks on and, surprise, they're all the same. Um, Our world sort of takes that approach sometimes. That's not what Paul is saying here. But Paul is saying we do have some common ground. Uh, We agree that there is a God, that God created humanity and has authority. And so now we're really talking about who is the real, true, living God? Uh, so uh, when I uh, used to live in Greenacre uh, in uh, Sydney, near Bankstown, uh, we had quite a large Muslim population in the area. And so uh, I would often get into conversations uh, with uh, Muslim people uh, as, I, as I chatted to them or as I was at school, that sort of thing. Uh, and in many respects, it was an easy conversation uh, because our starting point was that we both believed in God. Uh, we both believed in right and wrong... And we both agreed that we couldn't both be right. That by definition, the God of Islam uh, and the God of the Bible were different. Uh, so we had all of this common ground. Uh, and that allowed us to then have a, a, a bigger conversation. So what is actually true? Uh, and so we would often have these you know, quite long, quite respectful conversations. Uh, sometimes my cab rides would really go on, because, uh, you know, cabbies are cabbies, uh, so you get a Muslim cabbie and, and you just never end. Um, you, know, you you just chat away. It's fantastic. Uh, but if I was talking to an atheist, uh, we would start at a very different point, wouldn't we? Uh, because we all of those common ground things that there is a God uh, disappear. Uh, and so if we looked at sort of Paul's example, how would Paul talk to an atheist, perhaps? Uh, he doesn't lay it out, but perhaps... Uh, He would say, "Okay, what do we have in common? Uh, So it might be that we have a basic desire for life to have meaning uh, or a shared belief in right and wrong. Uh, And that becomes a starting point to talk about the Gospel. Uh, So the Gospel message isn't changing, but how we approach that message, where we start, does change uh, because our context changes. So verse 29, to continue in the passage, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So Paul, the, member of the, the members of the Areopagus, uh, agree uh, again that, that uh, God, uh, we are God's offspring uh, and he calls them to reject the, the, the folly of these, of these idols. But at this point we leave common ground uh, and we start to go to a very different place uh, because Paul is saying, you know, you used to live in ignorance but you can't live there anymore. Uh, you have now heard the truth and you need to respond. Uh, it's hard to know exactly what Paul means by God overlooked such ignorance Uh, Does that mean that God doesn't judge uh, people who have never heard about Jesus or never had a chance to respond? Uh, In one sense, that's not answered in this passage. Uh, It's actually not the point of this passage. The point of the passage isn't what happens to those who are ignorant, but that you cannot be ignorant and that you are not ignorant. Uh, Ultimately, uh, that question of how does God judge those who have never heard Uh, we have to leave that to the justice of God. Uh, We certainly know that no one is righteous, not even one. We are all sinners. Um, So no one can claim to be innocent. But how God judges the ignorant uh, is really a matter before God. And we leave that to God. But that is not our excuse, is it? Uh, I mean, it's really not our excuse as we sit here today. Uh, We have heard the gospel. Uh, we have no excuse not to respond and to repent and believe. And he points them as the ultimate proof of what he is saying to the resurrection. So verse 31, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Uh, And Again, this is where we've well and truly left common ground behind. So for the Greeks, uh, they don't believe there is any future accountability. Uh, there is no judgment, there's no resurrection, there are no consequences for your actions beyond what sort of the gods might sort of dish out day to day. But here, Paul proclaims Jesus, a man who shared in our humanity who is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. And we need to repent of our misguided loyalties, uh, whether that's uh, an idol uh, that we worship, uh, or more metaphorically, uh, those idols in our life, uh, the way we try to replace God with other things, or we try to replace God with our own right for self-determination. And we need to repent of those things, and recognise God for who he is. So the heavens declare the glory of God and all of creation shows us that there is order and purpose. But it's only once we look at the resurrection that we can look at not just that there is a God, but who that God actually is. That really is the God who has revealed himself in the scriptures, the God who raised Jesus from the dead. So our existence isn't just limited to this life, is it? Yeah, sometimes we live as if it is, that it's all about the here and now. But in the resurrection, we see that God has defeated the consequences of our sin. And in the resurrection, we see our future, that if God raised Jesus, that God will also raise us. Uh, And unsurprisingly, uh, as this crowd uh, hear these words from Paul, uh, you get two very strong reactions. Uh, so, for some, the idea of a resurrection is simply too far-fetched. We are thinking, rational, sophisticated human beings who live in a sophisticated society. If we're hearing it today, you'd say, "Oh, it's for 2019 for crying out loud!" You know, surely we've moved on from these superstitious things. Uh, And we say that with a a certain um, confidence and a bravado, I think on a cultural level. Uh, But at the same time, uh, there is a level of uncertainty, isn't there? Which is, then what is our meaning in life? What is our purpose? Why am I here? Does my life actually have any real value? Uh, If that's you, then can I encourage you to work it out? You know, if the issue is the historicity of the resurrection... Uh, then, then explore that. Look at, look at it historically. Uh, look at the in internal biblical accounts. Look at the external uh, witnesses. Uh, you know, if you don't like reading the books, then uh, watch the YouTube you know, videos of the people who wrote the books. Uh, but work out, well, what are the obstacles there that, that, that are getting in your way? Uh, for others, uh, it's not so much an issue of historicity, but the way God relates with humanity. You know, Paul says God is not far from us, but often we don't feel that God is really conforming to our particular expectation of what that should look like. You know, why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, why doesn't God uh, you know, sort of reveal himself? Why isn't there more sort of divine intervention? Uh, And at least part of that answer is because we are looking for divine intervention in the wrong places. And we don't see that God creating life is part of his divine intervention. Uh, But more perhaps significantly, we don't see that our salvation is the greatest divine intervention uh, that we could ever receive, Uh, that God would choose to save people for eternity. Uh, but in the moment, it just doesn't look that spectacular, does it? We sort of go, yeah, yeah, salvation, blah, blah. Um, now, can I just have an arm growing back or something? Um, you know, we, we, we sort of go for the, the trinkets and the trivial uh, as opposed to the genuinely profound. Uh, we want God to, to perform in a particular way. Uh, perhaps it has very little to do with facts or expectations, and it's really just about freedom. And we struggle with the idea of submitting our lives to the lordship of Christ. We're so afraid of missing out that we're blind to the fact that we are missing out on God's grace and mercy. Uh, But whatever the obstacle, can I encourage us to work it out? Uh, Because there is a lot at stake. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. But there's also a lot at stake in the present, isn't there? Because it shapes how we view our purpose in life. Uh, It shapes how we view right and wrong. Uh, And to at least, you know, there's one point of contact with us and the Stoics, that we want to live rightly. Now, of course, the other reaction to Paul's message was to believe. Uh, And for many of us, that's exactly what we've done. And so as believers, uh, we now have something wonderful, uh, but we also have a responsibility uh, to share that wonderful news Uh, with the world around us, Uh, to look at our community and to walk through the square and go, these people need to hear about Christ. Uh, And as we do that, uh, we cannot compromise the gospel message. Uh, We can't make it more palatable for our culture or more acceptable. Uh, The gospel doesn't change. We still need to talk about sin. We still need to talk about the need to repent and believe. We still need to talk about obedience. But how do we do that? Uh, in a way that at least starts with some common ground? Are there opportunities there uh, to start with what we agree on and move from that starting point to what the Gospel has to say? Uh, and as we do our bid, of course, we recognise that God's sovereign, uh, that God is working through us to fulfil his plans, and ultimately God is the one who changes hearts and minds. And so we pray, don't we? We pray that God might use our very humble efforts and our sometimes bumbling words to do great things. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that your word doesn't change, our culture might change. Uh, our our own understanding might change, but your word doesn't change. Uh, That we all need to come back to you to recognise that we are sinners, uh, but also to recognise that we are loved and that you offer to give us life. And so, Lord, I pray that we know that deeply uh, within ourselves. Uh, Lord, I pray that we live it out. uh, And Lord, I pray that we proclaim it uh, joyfully, uh, thankfully, courageously, uh, that you might choose to work through us to gather your people. Amen.